Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. And uh, it's the fall, and a lot of things happen every fall. There's Halloween, there's pumpkins. Hay rides. Hay rides. Leaves fall from the trees. Ig and Nobel Prizes. Yes, that's a big one. Especially yes. for anyone who has... Uh, who follow science uh, either as a hobby, as a, as a passion, as a, as a job, or all three if you're us. Uh, Ig Nobel Prize is always a big deal because the Ig Nobel Prizes highlight the absurd, mm-hmm. uh, the, the comical, the uh, the strange within the world of legitimate scientific research. Generally, generally peer-reviewed scientific research. Sometimes in the in the world of patents, but it's always about let's look at the the individuals who are just really dedicated. To study in one uh, in scientific study in one uh, shape or, or another, and some of the strange corners they work themselves into. Yeah, it is a play on the Nobel Prize, and uh, the uh, it's from Improbable Research, which publishes the magazine called the Annals of Improbable Research. And the whole point of that, they say, is it's there to make you laugh and then make you think uh, with, as you say, some of these bizarre turns in science. Yeah, uh, Mark Abrams. The, the main dude there. You know, it, so, some people don't catch the humor of it. They think that it's making fun of scientists. But I think most people understand that it's it's a celebration of the of the necessary absurdity of, of science. Because you th- think of science like a slime mold. We talked about how slime mold solves a maze. Mm-hmm. It sends out all these tendrils through the maze and then just, uh, figures out what is the best route. And then it goes that way. Uh, and in, in doing so, it can, you know, decipher the uh, the, the best uh, trade r- uh, routes across the, the face of the globe. Uh, science is kind of like that. Science is all about finding out how things work, how things work the best, and, uh, and what the world and what the universe really consists of. But that also means that the tendrils of science must sometimes creep into strange areas, into <laughs> uh, sometimes strange dead ends, and sometimes into very important areas of study that we are childish about and still snicker at. It's true. Yes. It does appeal to that. And um, I think with the Ig Nobel, what's interesting about that is you see so much creativity and imagination mm-hmm. from the researchers and the scientists who are working in their respective fields. And uh, what you might think is really rote, they have actually sort of peeled back and found very interesting and contextualizing it in ways that you might not have ever thought of. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about here when we talk about these prizes is uh, each year Ig Nobel will honor the achievements that, of course, make you laugh and that make you think, and they award 10 people these prizes. The winners travel from all over the world at their own expense <laughs> to a gala ceremony at Harvard where actual Nobel laureates present them with the prize. Um, this year's opera was the Blonsky device, a tribute to George and Charlotte Blonsky, who in the early 60s invented a machine for, quote, facilitating the birth of a child by centrifugal force. Oh, wow. So just sling the the kid right out. Is that a great visual (laughs) of what an ignoble prize can be? Because it's it's a perfectly logical idea, perfectly logical theory that doesn't really uh, sit well with people outside of the the lab, I think, you know, mm-hmm. which, which we've discussed that before. Like it's some of the often the, the, the amazing thing about scientists uh, is that sometimes the scientific answer just is not going to sit well with anybody outside of the scientific world, such as, say, uh, creating a spaceship that is itself edible or just uh, figuring out a way that astronauts can eat their own poop uh, on a return trip from Mars. 
on a very, you know, economic, scientific level, yes, that makes absolute sense. But then the astronauts say, no, we're not doing that. Well, and in some ways, these are thought experiments, right? Especially yes. the childbirth. It's probably not very pragmatic to, to be shooting out, you know, a child by centrifugal force. But, but what hey, kind of proof do we have? Do hey, we have scientific proof that it's not a good idea? One day, that might be the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to build on that research. All right, so let's highlight a couple of the prizes here. All right, first up, the psychology prize. This one went to uh, a team of French researchers, including uh, Laurette Bargu, uh, Olmen Zaruni, uh, Baptiste Subra, and uh, Midhi Orba. As well as Brad Bushman, and that was, the I think, the USA contingent there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was for confirming that people who think that they are drunk also think that they are more attractive. And, of course, this is great because if you just ask somebody that... You, Hey, do you think drunk people think they're more attractive? Of course they do. It's, it's a no-brainer, right? But has it been scientifically proven? Do we know for sure? And there are a lot of more important questions uh, in the history of, uh, of the human race that have come up where someone says, of course this is the way it works. Of course the Earth is the center of the universe. Of course the sun is the center of the universe. But when you apply the light of science to it, then you get the real answer. Um, or you get the evolution of a real answer. So in the first study carried out in a bar, they found that the more alcoholic drinks customers consumed, the more attractive they thought they were. Okay, that's obvious. But in study two, they took 94 non-student participants, and they put them in a bogus taste test study. They were given either an alcoholic beverage or a non-alcoholic beverage, with half of each group believing they had consumed alcohol and half believing they had not. So they had this balanced placebo effect going Mm -hmm. on. So after consuming the beverages, uh, they delivered a speech and rated how attractive, bright, original, and funny they thought they were. And they videotaped these speeches, and they were rated by a team of 22 independent judges. What did they find? Those people thought they were brilliant, (laughs) even if they weren't drunk. Just all they had to do was think that they were drunk. Mm-hmm. And they instantly thought that they were uh, like 50% greater than they actually are. I think this is important information, right? For yeah. everybody who is going out there and going to have a couple of drinks and then perhaps do something that is important to their livelihood, perhaps, mm-hmm. maybe you should reconsider the drinks. Maybe what you're about to do isn't quite as great as you think. <laughs> it's also interesting, um, you know, bringing up the, the idea that even a non-alcoholic beverage will mm-hmm. have the same effect. Um, and perhaps you can shed some light on this from your own experience since you, you gave up drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I assume you still find yourselves having a drink, uh, a non-alcoholic drink, maybe in the in the, the uh, company of individuals who are mm-hmm. drinking or um, or sort of fill that space in uh, in the, the ritual. Because I, I can think of a time or two where I've had something non-alcoholic and the, either the setting was right or uh, or the company was right, that I really kind of felt as if I had been drinking alcohol. Well, I, I think it boils way. down to mirror neurons. Yeah. Because if someone is sitting across from you and, and they're feeling a little bit loosened up, they've had a drink or two, and they begin to laugh a lot, then, of course, you're going to engage in the same activity. So it's mm-hmm. very easy, I think, to take on those sort of physical things for yourself. Yeah, you begin to fall into the, the cultural script that has been provided to you. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about this study is the title, which is called <laughs> Beauty is in the Eye of the Beer Holder. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's almost like they knew they were going to get ignoble. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, I, I, I tend to prefer the ones that are just really uh, like rigidly scientific. Yeah. And, and, and you get the idea that they're completely oblivious to how ridiculous it might sound to an outsider. Mm-hmm. It's got like five prepositions in yeah. it, about 500 words long. 
All right, let's talk about the joint prize in biology and astronomy. Now, uh, Marie Dack, Emily Baird, Eric Warrant, Marcus Byrne, and Clark Schultz received this prize for discovering that when dung beetles get lost, that they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. This, at first glance, doesn't seem like, I mean, it seems like sort of amazing, but yeah, okay, what are you talking about here? Yeah. It is very cool. Yeah, I mean, obviously the moon is big money when it comes to uh, nighttime navigation. Out there in the animal world, it's just about everything, it seems, can yeah can use the moon for mm-hmm. some form of navigation. But previously, only birds, seals, and humans were known to use the stars to navigate. I mean, that or to orient themselves. Uh, so that's privileged territory. So the idea that, hey, the, the lowly dung beetle is using this uh, technique as well, and That's amazing. What I like to imagine is that, you know, these dung beetles, they, they actually like to run in straight lines, by the way. And what I like to imagine is that when they find a pile of, of droppings, which mm-hmm. they then roll into a small ball, and they start pushing it away from the other dung beetles that might try to eat it, mm-hmm. I like to imagine them just getting on top of that ball and staring up oh. at the Milky Way, all dewy-eyed. That's awesome. I, know. I want that to be a Pixar movie. And it should be, yeah. right? Um, but I think it's very cool because it was thought that they were taking cues from, from the sun and the moon. Um, but it was their capacity to maintain course even on clear moonless nights that got researchers thinking that it perhaps was something else. It could have been the stars. So lead researcher Marie Dock, she took the insects into the Johannesburg planetarium where she could control the type of star fields a uh, beetle might see overhead. Uh-huh. So they get their own little planetarium show. <laughs> she put them in a container with blackened walls to make sure the animals were not using other information from landmarks on the horizon, which in the wild might be trees, for example. Right. And she found that the beetles perform best when confronted with a perfect starry sky projected onto the planetarium dome. Although even in um, other conditions, they could still find their way. Cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's the, the the finding represents the first convincing demonstration for the use of starry sky uh, orientation in insects, uh, and and provides the first documented use of the Milky Way for orientation in the animal kingdom. So that's pretty amazing. I actually was pretty. I thought this was amazing because we've talked about navigation mm-hmm. so much and how mysterious it is, particularly when we talk about birds or butterflies. And now you've got dung beetles yeah. in on the game. Give a give a dung beetle his due. Indeed. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to roll through three more of our favorites from the 2013 Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, all sorts of goofy and amazing things are going to happen in those studies. All right, we're back. Oh, by the way, Microcosmos, um, when that film first came out, all the, uh, the DVD or VHS covers for it mm-hmm. had this praying mantis wearing sunglasses on it which totally misrepresented the entire picture. Like they were trying to play up the uh, like a like it was a bug's life or something. Uh, like it's some sort of cute insect story and it's yeah. not. It's a it's a, just a beautifully shot insight into the world, the violent, the weird uh, and and beautiful world of insects. But praying mantises do wear ray-bans, no, right? No, they do not. <laughs> not at all. Well, I don't you should probably check into that. Okay. Okay. I'll fact check that. All right. All right, now we're back. We're talking about the uh, 2013 Ig Nobel Prize winners, and we're uh, we're not going through all of them. We're just covering some of our favorites. You can check out the rest uh, at the Improbable Research website, and we uh, highly suggest you do that. 
the next prize we're going to discuss safety engineering prize. And this one went to the uh, late Gostano Pizzo um, from the U.S. for a 1972 patent for an amazing invention that I, I'm just floored that we haven't used, that we, have, that we don't see in every airplane. I love this invention because on some level I think it appeals to the eight-year-olds yes. and all of us, as well as the Bond fans. Yes, there's a little James Bond to this and a little, uh, like it's like an Acme invention from uh, mm-hmm. the Roadrunner cartoon. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, it is actually an electromechanical system to trap airplane hijackers. <laughs> the system drops a hijacker through trap doors, seals him into a package, then drops the hijacker through the airplane's specially installed bomb bay doors through which he is parachuted to the ground, where, of course, police, having been alerted by radio, await his arrival. Yeah. So, On ski jets, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was an illustration with the patent. Uh, you, I mean, the patent's, you know, public, you know, the public domain. You can, you can find it online. Uh, and, and the, the illustrations are wonderful because you see the individual, you see him jettisoned, you see him in the little package with the, with the parachute, and and you're totally right. On one hand, it's it's very James Bond. It, mm-hmm. I think it reminds me of A View to a Kill, where Christopher Walken was the was the villain, and uh, he was in a blimp. And I'm pretty sure there's a trap door in that blimp for jettisoning um, members of his team that were uh, falling out of line. Uh, but you know, this is uh, we're talking about a commercial flight here. We don't want people to just fall to their death. We no. want them to fall safely uh, on a parachute uh, so that the police can apprehend them. Well, in you know, in theory, it is a great idea. Yeah, it, it makes a kind of like simple sense, you know. It's just in the execution, right? Because right. you have to make sure that the person is standing in the right area, and that you know he doesn't inadvertently or she—you never know—toss mm-hmm. uh, you down. You who are not the person who's trying to hijack the plane are then you know jettisoned down to the police. So. Again, it's just a, a matter of logistics here, but I do really like this. Yeah. I wish on some level that it would be pragmatic enough that you could actually use. All right, up next, the Archaeology Prize. And this one went to uh, Brian Crandall and uh, Peter Stahl, uh, the former from U.S., the latter from Canada, U.S., uh, for observing how the bones of swallowed dead shrews dissolve inside the human digestive system. Now the the the, uh, the the answer is in the in the study there because obviously this is a study about um, humans swallowing the bones of a dead shrew and then later fishing through the fecal matter to see how it turned out. Yeah, the shrew was parboiled and then of course swallowed whole without any sort of chewing and then carefully examined during the the excretory period yes in which would have correlated from when it would arrive in that excretion uh so yeah they wanted to see how the bones would dissolve inside the human digestive system but why you ask why uh because they wanted to see how, or rather help archaeologists determine whether small animal bones found at historic sites signified that the animals had been eaten or died naturally. So the, the question is important. Mm-hmm. Like having the answer to this helps us make sense of so many archaeological sites uh, uh, and finds around the world. But the in order to answer it, they took a very straightforward approach. And uh, to the outside viewer, perhaps a, an undignified um, investigation, but that's just the way it is. Sometimes you you want to you want an answer to a question. That sometimes there is a very simple, straightforward way to do it. Yeah, you could go through 
some sort of complex chemical process that mimicked the digestion of the human body. You could essentially build a cloaca bot to digest this uh, this tiny rodent for you, mm-hmm. or you could just do what makes sense. You could just you could just say, "Screw it, I'm going to swallow this creature." And then I'm going to poop it out, and then I'm going to see, and I'm going to have my answer, and and I'm not going to need all this ridiculous funding to do it. Now, if I remember correctly, um, this was featured in Mary Richards' Gulp. Yes. And um, at the time of her writing that, I believe that it wasn't revealed whether it was Crandall or Stahl who actually <laughs> swallowed the shrew because they didn't want people to focus on who was combing through their poo to try to find... Uh, the bones, they mm-hmm. wanted people to focus on how it was actually digested. <laughs> and in case you're wondering, uh, the digestive action of, of either Crandall or Stahl obliterated everything but 28 bones out of 131. Way to go. Way to go, digestive system. Yeah. All right, and we're going to look at one last uh, study here, and this one is the Public Health Prize. And this one uh, comes to us uh, from Thailand. And and I have to say we we left this one because you have to leave the penis for last, really. Yes, uh, yeah. because this study had to do with medical techniques for penile reattachment after amputations, often by jealous wives. Um, techniques which they recommended, except in cases where the amputated penis had been partially eaten by a duck. Now, we need. You to, should explain that. I, part. Yeah, I need to explain this, and I'm I'm just going to pull directly from Mark Abrams' article that came out in the Guardian last year, titled "Why Thai Women Cut Off Their Husbands' Penises." Okay. He points out that uh, quote It became fashionable in the decade after 1970 for the humiliated Thai wife to wait until her philandering husband fell asleep so that she could quickly sever his penis with a kitchen knife. A traditional Thai home is elevated on pilings, and the windows are open to allow for ventilation. The area under the house is home is the home of the family pigs, chickens, and ducks. Thus, it is quite usual that an amputated penis is tossed out of an open window where it may be captured by a duck. Then Abrams goes on to say, the report explains for readers in other countries, quote, the Thai saying, I better get home or the ducks will have something to eat, is therefore a common (laughs) joke and immediately understood at all levels of society. So in case anybody is visiting uh, Thailand... And you happen to to be able to hear this phrase. Now you have a context for it. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess there was a prominent 1973 uh, case in which a woman sliced off her husband's penis. And then during the 70s, there were like something like 100 other Yeah, basically, uh, it sounds like it got this. a tremendous amount of coverage mm-hmm. at the time. Because it is, it's an, you know, it, as we know in the West, um, it, a case like this happens, the media is just going to eat it up. Um, no pun intended. Right. And... Uh, and so it's it's in the public mindset, and uh, and so you begin to see other cases popping up. Of That's the right. That was the great Bobbitt escapade in the U.S., yeah. and I believe that penis was flung out a car window. Yes, but was uh, apprehended before uh, a duck could intercept. And it also was reattached. It was. So basically, this whole the whole study. I mean, the study makes it in because on one hand it involves the penis, and therefore is inherently funny, uh, and then it also is. Weird and uh, and and ties in this uh, this epidemic of, uh, of of penile amputation, and it involves ducks, and ducks are inherently funny as well. Even though at, at the at the bottom line, even bad philandering husbands uh, probably don't deserve to have their their penises cut off. I'm not gonna oh, I'm not no. gonna go so far as to say no. That. And I imagine too that um, 
I don't have, obviously, the plumbing, but I, I would want there to be quite a bit of study where I, a man whose whose penis was cut off and had to be reattached to make sure that it was done properly. Yes, I mean, it's it's a, an injury that is going to occur in the course of, uh, of, of human events, and it's better that we do have techniques on hand, it, that we do know the best means by which to reattach it, if possible. So... It's it's a study that at, at, at once is highly helpful and great, and it's wonderful that the, the researchers contributed to our scientific understanding with it. But on the other hand, there are a number of inherently uh, giggle-inducing qualities to it. And that's why we love Ignoble, right? Because yes. you get pretty much everything. Yes. Uh, from dung beetles to penises. Yeah, from studies that are that just seem to sort of fill in one tiny corner of our scientific understanding or, or things that or studies that are that are actually highly important but still induce snickers. So there you have it. Another Ig Nobel Prize ceremony has come and gone. We've highlighted some of the ones we liked. You can check out the rest online at the Improbable Research uh, website. And, uh, yeah, follow those guys. They put that uh, magazine out as a PDF, and it's always uh, tremendous fun to leaf through it. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to chat with us about it, if you want to share your favorites uh, from this year's uh, award winners, or you have some past favorites that you still snicker about, let us know about it. You can find us in all the usual places. Our mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com, where you'll find all our videos, all our blog posts, all our podcasts. Yes, even the episodes of the podcast that are not available on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcast, you will find them on the website. And you can always drop us a line with your thoughts at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 